the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Certain regions of our brains are always at work at involuntary activities like daydreaming, worrying about the future, and self-talk. This mind-wandering can stop us from keeping our attention in the present moment. We spend a great deal of time and energy trying to control this incessant chatter. But according to today's guest, Dr. Moshe Barr, we can harness the default activity in our brains and use it to our benefit. Dr. Barr is an internationally renowned cognitive neuroscientist. He is a former director of the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Harvard Medical School and the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Barr's new book is Mind Wandering, How Your Constant Mental Drift Can Improve Your Mood and Boost Your Creativity. Welcome, Dr. Barr. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Doctor, we spend a great deal of time and energy trying to keep our brains from mind wandering. According to various studies, our minds wander up to 47% of our waking time. What is mind wandering and where does our mind go when it wanders? Well, there are many questions packed in around this uh, seemingly naive uh, question. It, it actually, it goes, it has a life of its own, so, so to speak. Um, we have very little control over when our mind wanders, when it stops wandering, and where it goes, where it wanders. But in my book, I talk about different kind of mental histories or things that have happened in your brain just before can definitely determine the direction of your wandering. So you can be wandering to planning something or trying to think about a problem that bothered you before. So uh, it's not completely random where we wander to. Um, but yeah, we, we really have very little control over it, and it has in your in the other part of your question, why do we wonder? Why does our mind wonder? It has many benefits uh, beyond uh, the downside of taking us from the moment and keeping us occupied. It has a lot of uh, advantages to creativity and mood especially. When we spend yeah. so much time mind wandering, what does that do to our lives? What type of impact does it have on us? Well, for one, it distracts us from from really experiencing the present. So. And the way that the Buddhists have talked about it and, and all this uh, mindfulness wave and, and people talk about meditation, we all realize that we're missing a lot of in, in our life just by not being present. So when I'm listening to my daughter telling me about some story from uh, school that's not overly demanding for me to listen, then another part of my brain starts to wonder and I miss a lot of what she says, I miss a lot about her expressions, a lot of... Uh, of other kind of uh, nuances of communication that I would have enjoyed otherwise. I can maybe say it more provocatively that uh, when you're eating a mango, it will taste differently if you're busy and occupied or if you're thinking about your experience and you really are in the present. So it really takes us away from what we can enjoy. It can also take us away from bad things. So I'm not sure that it's not good uh, when you when you're lying in the dentist uh, a chair to actually wander and do go somewhere else. So maybe it's recommended. Uh, that you not be in the moment, in the moment that you don't want to be in. Do you sometimes think that it's a mechanism to enable us to escape from something traumatic? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I haven't phrased it like this, but yeah, it's a really good question. So it, it also ties to your first question about 
where does it go? So I think that uh, I really, my intuition, there's no evidence for this, but my intuition is that you're completely right here that uh, when people try to avoid thinking about trauma, people with PTSD, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, they definitely don't want to revisit the trauma in their mind. So they do everything possible. But there's something curious about the mind that I do write about it. Uh, it's called the ironic process, that the more you try to avoid thinking about something, the more you think about it. It's a beautiful uh, line of thesis that was uh, done by uh, a late and great colleague of mine, Dan Wagner at Harvard, that showed that it actually inspired from a Dostoevsky uh, story. But the idea there was to tell people not to think about white bears, and this is the only thing they were actually thinking about. So leaving, leaving people be and just uh, thinking about white bears much less than the bears, so specifically not to think about it. So this obviously has a lot of implications to exactly what you're saying, that when we try to not think about the trauma, actually that, that makes us more obsessed about this trauma. So not directly telling yourself not to think about something achieves the opposite effect. So it's really you need to be, to be more sophisticated with your mind. You're trying to fool your mind. When you promote mind wandering in situations like that, can it lead to healing? Can it create some type of a creative solution to the problem that you're trying to avoid? Well, again, there are two things here. So uh, uh, I don't personally believe that you can cure a trauma without visiting it. So just by avoiding it, at some point, I believe that you can't escape it. But you did say also in your question about finding creative solutions. So a lot of what we do when we wonder is we call it incubate. We incubate our problems. So our creative process is that I mean, sometimes in, this, uh, in those aha moments where we have an epiphany or some kind of an insight, it almost feels like pixie dust, but it's really coming from our subconscious doing this incubation behind the scene and thinking about creative solutions for ourselves. So the mind, uh, there's no reason it won't be the case, but the mind also tries to find a creative solution to dealing with the trauma behind the scenes during your, during your mind wandering and that kind of uh, affects your conscious living more. So what are some of the positive things that result when we tap into this? I would start off by saying that actually a lot of my friends are thankful to me because I kind of gave them permission not to feel guilty uh, and to myself also not to feel guilty when I'm being caught or when I catch myself wondering. So when realizing that it has so many um, advantages, you realize it's actually a very productive time and we shouldn't be feeling that we are not, no, I should feel guilty when I'm trying to listen to my daughter and instead I'm wondering to something at work. But otherwise, you know, just staying in bed in the morning, just extra 15 minutes to wander, that, that's completely productive and it's compl- completely okay to do because the mind does a lot of things uh, that are good for us during those uh, intervals. And you mentioned the, the 47%, the, the half of our waking time uh, that is dedicated for mind wandering. So when you think about evolution, it won't allow a process that takes so much energy. I mean, mind wandering takes takes uh, a great deal of energy, metabolic energy from our body and from our brain. So there's got to be a reason. That's how we as scientists try to explore and que- you know the, we say the quest of characterizing what is the function of mind wandering. There's no way evolution instilled us instilled mind wandering in us. If it didn't have a purpose, and it was just a nuisance or something that takes us away from, from our lives, really. So uh, in my own research, I emphasize both creativity and mood. But I first want to say that, that other great uh, labs also identify the, our representation of the self. And I also cover all these aspects in the book that uh, we have, we each have uh, a representation or knowledge or some kind of entity in our mind that is ourselves. You, you know how you would respond in different situation you can imagine. You know what you like, you know what you don't like. So the self, the capital S, is also mediated by, by you know, represented by this wandering mind. And second thing is that we think about others. We call it theory of mind. So always in interaction with others. We try to anticipate what they're thinking, what are their intentions, why did they say what they did, or why did they act as, as they just did. So understanding ourselves and understanding others uh, are two core uh, faculties of, of, of mind-wandering and, and the brain network that mediates this wandering. Uh, but I think something that, that is way more applicable in everyday life is uh, 
our thinking about creativity and mood. So both are, I'm sure you agree with me, both are central to our being. Both how we feel in terms of mood really affects how we enjoy our lives. And creativity, creativity is a big deal. I see over the years with my research how much interest there is in creativity from people just because, you know, there's something optimistic about being creative. And the idea that we can be more or less creative, the same individual, it's not destiny, it's not that you're born with a certain level of creativity and that's it. But certain states of mind and certain circumstances can can amplify how creative you are in certain, in a given situation. So I'm not saying that we can all become Leonardo da Vinci, but we can be more or less creative depending on how much we let our mind wander and broadly. So if, if you don't mind, I'll just emphasize, I'll just elaborate on what does it mean broadly, because if, if listeners would like to utilize this, this uh, research and they're all incorporated into their daily lives, maybe it's something that I want to, maybe it's to elaborate on. So mm-hmm. think about all the things you know in memory. There's a giant network, giant uh, uh, yes, network of nodes connected to each other. So everything is connected to everything, and it's just a matter of how many steps you need to go from uh, cat to tomato, for example. So cat and dog is very close, and cat and tomato are further, but Still, everything is connected. Mm-hmm. So when we wander, we, when we wander, we can be wandering very narrowly. Let's say something bothers you from yesterday, so your mind kind of grinds only this aspect and only this issue. So you wander and you wander and you wander, but you stay very narrowly in this network. And on the other hand, when you try to find a creative solution or you think more freely, uh, which is what we call broad thinking, then you can really travel without borders, without limits on this on this uh, network. That's why creative solutions and creative people come up with either, what, what does it mean to be original? So you don't take the immediate solution, you don't take the narrow solution, but rather you travel in this network broadly. So when you wander, and especially when it's coupled with good mood, then your wandering is, is broader and it's much more conducive of, of creative ideas of creative thinking. So as we say, uh, I mean, narrow wandering can translate into something that we call rumination, which is the hallmark of uh, depression. So if you wander narrowly, as I just explained on this network, if you if you uh, ruminate and you just wander narrowly, then it, it might end up being a, a clinical depression. Uh, so it's really a good idea to um, try to let your mind uh, uh, free. Set your mind free and, and let it go when you know when it's appropriate. I'm not saying that when you when you drive really fast on your car on the freeway, it's not a good idea to, to wonder even about creative things. But by and large, we do want to uh, let our mind be. Well, and I think if you're afraid to take action in one direction or make a decision, I think by being able to sit down and allow your mind to think of all the possible scenarios that could play out, I, I think that could actually help you to eliminate mm-hmm. those fears and, and to make better decisions. Yes, I think it's brilliant. Uh, it ties to how we look at cre- creativity. If you want to think about a shape, so it's like a diamond. So initially, when you have to think about creative solution, there's what we call divergent thinking. So you think all over the place, and your mind at this stage doesn't have a tensor, it doesn't have anything to limit, and everything goes. And sometimes I, I consult to companies and I tell them that the proper way to do brainstorming is there's no boss, there's no tensor, there's no somebody that says this is a bad idea, but this is bad, this, is, this won't work, killing the ideas beforehand. So initially, in divergent thinking, in the opening part of this diamond shape, everything goes. And just as you say, you think about things that of solutions or thoughts that you haven't before, and hmm, you know, in second thought, maybe that's a great idea. So then comes the opposite, the conversion thinking, so they closing this diamond, and there you really have to to uh, to find the, the best solution from all those that you've activated in the in the divergent part. So it is definitely what you're saying is a critical part of creative thinking to be at the stage where you generate a lot of solutions, even if they seem uh, far-fetched and remote and, and unlikely, still you shoot in all directions, so to speak, and then uh, you have to choose one from them, but that's the only way to get to original solutions and unexpected solutions, just by not criticizing yourself internally. Doctor, <laughs> children's lives are so structured. I, I remember when I was a child, we had so much time for free play, 
But we don't allow that anymore. We don't allow the time for curiosity or creativity in our children. How do you think that will impact them later in life? So, yeah, it, it, in a way, it's really sad looking at what happens with kids. And yes, the system, the, the school system, uh, I live in Israel now, but it, it, it's the same also in the U.S., not uh, due to even intentions or ignorance, but just, I guess, constraints of how uh, schools are built and kids sit together and they have to be quiet. So there's a lot of suppression going on. It, this might be a strong word, but uh, I think this is one place where I do want to be strong about this idea that that we suppress both the uh, original ideas, original thinking, but also the, I mean, I was a wandering kid, and I was, I'm also here a wandering parent. I mean, my kids know that I'm not always listening, and you know that they, so, you know, uh, we have a routine at home uh, to deal with this. But I do the same with them, and, and if they don't do anything, uh, I actually think it's a great idea just to see a kid, and uh, it emphasizes what you said. I mean, how rare it is. To see now a kid, you know, 10, 12 years old, just sitting and not uh, doing anything. And, and, and obviously, when they're not doing anything, their mind wanders. That's good. I, I talk in, uh, I give an example. My little one is 10 now, but when she was uh, maybe six, I, I remember how I was on my way to go out to, to, to work and I saw her having a breakfast and staring through the, through the window and there's nature outside. And I came to her and I asked her, Amelia, what are you thinking about? And she said, I'm not thinking about anything. And it struck me as, you know, you just look at something and you don't necessarily have to ask, you know, we have the grown-ups have so many worries and concerns and things to think about and we bother with things. So we can't just look at a flower and, and stay there with, with a flower. We immediately wander and, and drift. And uh, I guess I drift to be talking about the negative aspects. But yeah, back to your question. I think it's a great idea, actually, and, and, and uh, following some talks I gave after their book came out, there's a couple of entities that's really interested in trying to facilitate and to in, in, enhance creativity in the organizations. And we talk about what are the conditions. You know, you should, we just discussed now, right, uh, the positive and the negative of wandering. So you don't want to cultivate it too extreme. You want to be able to recognize what is good wandering and what Bad, both in terms of context and in terms of content, and um, and you know just have better control of, of when you do what. Again, I'm not claiming that. Uh, I want to emphasize that we don't have much control over the process itself, but we can navigate it to some extent, and we can have some effect about the content of what we wonder about. In the situation where we allow ourselves to, to wonder and when not. So, uh, I think you know opening up this, this broad thinking that I told you about, that, that is conducive to creativity, this is exactly the, the non-suppressed thinking, thinking broadly and not suppressed. And you need time for this. So if kids are always from one class to another and from one activity to another, I, I do think that people still find their time. I mean, their mind is so stubborn. It does find the time to, to wander. But I really hope that people won't think it's a waste of time. The book is Mind Wandering, How Your Constant Mental Drift Can Improve Your Mood and Your Creativity. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Barr and his work, you can visit MosheBar.org. Moshe, in our final moments, in about 30 seconds or less, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Well, one thing that, that struck me as I was uh, thinking about this research and then writing it up is that so much of our happiness and our, the quality of our life and the quality of our moment-to-moment experience really depends on what's going on in our mind. So it might sound trivial, it might sound also provocative that, you know, we tend to, I think many of us tend to blame some unhappiness on others and, and it, it's like the world has caused these things to us. But then you realize that your mind actually uh, colors experiences and colors your, uh, your uh, happiness uh, and it really depends on the disposition. And if the disposition includes broad mind watering, then by improving mood and creativity, I think we're uh, in good shape. Moshe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joan. I enjoyed it. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, 
exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Esther Pippoli, helps families navigate life's difficult moments. She's the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. Her company provides confidential concierge grief support to families, business owners, and employers, helping them navigate the operational side of loss. She is here today to discuss protecting a business after a loss. Welcome, Esther. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Esther, when death occurs, we usually think about how it changes us on a personal level, but what about when we own a business with the person who passed? How can that loss impact us? Well, you know, how you respond to that and get ready for that is super crucial. Um, My late husband was a trial lawyer, so for me, I needed to react appropriately, and I made a lot of mistakes. So here are just a few things that I think are important. One if you have a business owner that is your spouse and is um, they passed away or they're going to pass away, having communication with their employees or their clients is really important. So setting that up ahead of time is, is best, but if not, as soon as they pass away, establishing who the clients and the customers are and sending out communication to them, letting them know that everything's going to be okay and that somebody's going to be point in taking any questions or concerns for you, that is the first thing. The second thing is, you know, security. Who has access to the office, to the important documents, to the files, to the client information? Unfortunately, employees get and go into a self-preservation mode, and they start maybe taking or looking at information and saying, look, my boss just passed away. Um, I need to, you know, start looking for another job. And they think maybe sometimes taking their clients that they've been working with to another firm might be easier, a transition without talking to the ownership or the leadership um, so knowing who has access to your office in and out, the time frames, and talking with the security guard if there is one in the building is super important. Also knowing your accounting and receivables for those clients. Who owes your spouse or your business money? What kind of um, accounting setup was set up and um, arrangements? You know, were people making payments? Do they have an outstanding balance? Knowing that all those things may end up having to go through probate. And one of the most important things that I learned is that I was the executor for my husband's estate. I didn't realize that I was also the bill collector for his business. That was an important lesson that took me years to figure out. Esther, what if you're a spouse who has never had any part of the business, don't really know the industry, and don't have any interest in keeping it going? How do you get through those difficult days after and then try to figure out where to go from there? If you have a trusted CPA, I always recommend reaching out to them. If you don't, whether you've had a relationship with them or not, or a financial wealth manager to help you identify a consultant, a business person that can go in, maybe somebody that's retired that goes in and can help you um, establish new leadership within the company or to maybe who's going to take over or sell the business. But having your CPA or your person that can go through that with you to look at those accountings and receivables and talk you through the processes is super important. Do not turn it over 100%. You have to stay involved, even if you don't understand, become educated. And it doesn't matter if you have to stop people and say, hold on, talk to me like I'm a first grader. Please start over because I need to make sure I understand this completely. 
and maybe even having a trusted partner, somebody that's a friend that you trust that's confidential that can take notes for you during these meetings or recording them because you want to make sure that you are working with a team that's going to help navigate you through this process. A lot of times spouses think that they don't want to, you know, get their wives or their husbands involved in their business. But when there is a loss or a major life diagnosis, they become lost in this process. So it's good for you to know a little bit about the business so that you can you can work through it. Well, and I think it would be a great idea to just have this conversation when you're healthy to try to figure out what's the game plan in case. Exactly. So having those protocols in place are really important to know what happens if I become, you know, ill with COVID or some um, life diagnosis that maybe is going to require some treatment. Who's going to be that team that's going to work your business through and have that communication, but also work with your spouse? And the other side of it is, you know, if you become um, incapacitated into the point where you will pass away, your family needs to know what your wishes were with the business and the transition. And if there's partners, you need to make sure that you've got everything set up ahead of time to have those difficult conversations. So talking to an insurance agent about buy-sell agreements and key man insurance is also important for your own safety and for the financial security for your family. Esther, what's the takeaway from this conversation? Even if you have a family business or your spouse has a business, you need to know at least enough about it to process it. You know, once a year, twice a year, you're supposed to have meetings, um, corporate meeting minutes. I mean, it's a good time for you to sit down with your spouse and say, what do I need to know? Some people have those quarterly meetings with their family and say, here's what's going on. Some people never share anything until it's too late. So I think, you know, from a standpoint of communication, sitting down, having a glass of wine or a cup of coffee or a cup of hot tea, whatever you want to get, um, and having those conversations and saying, you know, honey, I need to know who I trust in the event something happens to me or you. We need to have a plan in place. So let's have this difficult conversation, and then it'll be over before we know it. It's like ripping off a Band-Aid. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Esther and her work, you can visit lossoflifeadvocates.com. And as always, to hear more great advice from Esther, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Esther. We'll be right back. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit cyacyl.com slash media training. That's cyacyl.com slash media training. Have you ever considered using medical-grade essential oils for improving your immune system? Imagine having your medicine cabinet filled with therapeutic-grade essential oils that can actually improve your health. Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified Reiki master. Many essential oils work directly to either fortify the immune response or eradicate the bacteria and viruses that can make us sick. Research suggests that highly concentrated essential oils also have pharmacological and immune-strengthening properties, such as antiviral, antifungal, antiseptic, and anti-inflammatory. Here are some of my favorites for building a stronger immune system. Lavender, when used before bed, can improve your sleep, a critical factor in building a strong immune system. Jasmine has been known for alleviating stress and anxiety. This is critical since studies show that ongoing stress can undermine immunity and leave us vulnerable to both everyday illnesses and chronic disease. And last, frankincense, one of my favorites, is best known for its highly effective inflammation-fighting capabilities. Are you ready to take the initiative for strengthening your own immune system by incorporating essential oils into your daily lives? If you would like more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com or call 201-615-0960. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, We live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. 
Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It has been reported that in the United States, more women than men live in poverty. Our next guest, Tammy Thompson's own life, once emulated those statistics. Tammy's journey was paved with homelessness, loss, and countless obstacles, but she turned that pain into a triumphant story. Tammy is a poverty expert, national speaker, and creator of the Psychology of Poverty. Welcome, Tammy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Timmy, you've been through a lot in your life. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure, yes. It has been a long journey. You know, doing this radio tour has really reminded me (laughs) of how far I've come and how long this journey has been. Um, But I was born in very, very deep generational poverty. Uh, Started out our lives uh, moving from uh, the hills of West Virginia to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And upon arriving in Pennsylvania, uh, we became homeless, living in our car, uh, my father and my mother both looking for work, taking turns, staying in the car with my brother and I, and uh, having a pretty tough time in regards to housing security and food insecurity, uh, and eventually became an adult, raising my own children in poverty, just trying to get a foothold, trying to figure out how to escape and and create a better life for my family, but it has been a long journey. Timmy, how did that experience shape the person you became? Well, I think, you know, 52-year-old Tammy has a different answer than younger Tammy, who was really in the midst of it and struggling. I think one of the ways that it has shaped me is recognizing that I'm stronger than I ever thought I was and that I had hidden talents and skills that at the time when I was really stuck in poverty and really in deep survival mode trying to figure it out, I never recognized those strengths and talents. So, you know, recognizing a survival mode changes how you view yourself. It changes how you see opportunity. It changes how you see your community. So doing the work to separate yourself from survival mode and start being a thrival thinker has been one of the things that I've learned along the way is probably the most important aspect to escaping poverty. More women today are living in poverty than men. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think historically women have, you know, society has put a quote-unquote place for us, where we belong. And in the past, that has been at home, taking care of our children, taking care of husbands. Um, and we have slowly been making progress to get ourselves out of that mold. Unfortunately, everybody doesn't see us uh, in that way. And they would actually prefer that we stayed home and stayed out of the workforce. And I think, you know, the fact that we still earn less than men in most cases is a prime example of the fact that folks don't see us. And the value in us, in the workforce, in society, in entrepreneurship, in any space um, that has been historically set aside for men. When we think about people living in poverty, we, we usually equate that to their financial situation. But you say that poverty is not just about not having money. Can you explain that to us a little bit more? Absolutely. This is one of my most favorite things to speak about, because I think when we hear poverty, when we start discussing about poverty, we're typically talking about people's financial condition, where how much money do they have or how much money don't they have. And although that is a very important thing to understand and to discuss, 
we also need to talk about the emotional and psychological impact that poverty has on people. The impact of not having your most basic needs met on a regular basis changes how you see yourself in this society. Um, for a lot of good reasons, uh, you know, there's a lot of stigma and shame associated with poverty. So focusing on how that stigma and shame help create uh, situations for people, changing how we see ourselves based on our perception that society has set for people in poverty. The I don't work hard enough or you're not smart enough or you haven't done enough or you deserve to be poor attitude is, is actually literally killing people because a lot of people would rather suffer in silence than deal with the shame and judgment that comes with being in poverty. So I think that focusing on the emotional and psychological impact is just as important or more important than focusing on the financial aspect because uh, if you don't see yourself moving to the next level, if you don't see yourself in a space outside of poverty, then the chances of actually getting out are reduced. Um, you know, we can give people money, we can throw money at these issues, but the reality is if people don't see themselves being in a different space or see themselves as a homeowner or an entrepreneur or someone who has the ability to move up the economic ladder, then they won't. So I'm really, really focusing on helping people see themselves in, in certain opportunities is very important. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, my work is all around changing your attitude and changing your life. So I do believe that it begins with the way we see ourselves and, and what we believe it can be possible. So how then, and, and you said that this is you know where a lot of your work is focused. So how then do we go about giving people hope, helping them make their dreams come true, making them see what is possible? Yeah, I think we start uh, individually, as individuals, I think it's important for us as members of this society to soften our eyes and change and put ourselves in, in the shoes of folks who are struggling and recognize that judging is not what's going to help. And also recognizing that just because you're not in poverty doesn't mean that you and your family aren't being impacted by other people who are. You know, economically, as a society, as a country, we are all being uh, impacted by folks in poverty. Uh, our society as a whole, our morals, our values are being impacted by poverty. And so just because you're not in it doesn't mean that you're not being impacted by it. Secondly, change how we think. Change how you speak to people. Be kind. Look at someone from a different perspective. Get out of our bubbles if you haven't had this experience and get to know what created someone's condition. Everybody's not in poverty for the same reasons either, right? So there's generational poverty as well as situational poverty. And I think we as individuals have to change how we see people because it's really hurting. It's hurting folks in poverty and it's also hurting our society and our culture in this country. Um, and then I think we have to speak up um, and, and recognize that the folks who are in this work, who are, there's tons of programs all around the country uh, ever since the inception of the war against poverty, you know, we said that we were going to invest and we were going to do these things to help get people out. But we've spent over $35 trillion on the war on poverty, and here we still are talking about it. So what needs to change? Uh, and I think listening to people who are in poverty or who have been in poverty is our first step. Who knows better what works and what doesn't work than people who have been trying to navigate and survive in poverty their whole lives. So focusing on the financial aspect for a moment, can you offer a tip or a strategy that can help a woman develop a financial foundation? Yeah, first and foremost, I think focusing, getting a better relationship with money, recognizing your triggers of overspending or, you know, uh, not learning how to budget. And I come from a family where I was never taught these things, right? I come from a family who was just in survival mode. So I never knew how to manage money. I think doing a self-assessment and analyzing what you know and what you don't know, and then seeking out resources to learn what you don't is the first step. 
you know, if, if you're not familiar with how money works, then you're most likely going to be making mistakes that are too costly to continue to make. So learning what you know, learning what you don't know, finding resources to fill in the gaps of what you don't know, but also doing a self-assessment and figuring out what are your natural-born talents and skills. Do you have natural talents and skills that you've never even recognized that could be converted into either an opportunity in the workplace or an opportunity to run your own business and, and set aside money, uh, you know, as either an additional income or becoming an entrepreneur full-time. And I've met many women in the programming that we do who didn't even know that they had these special skills and talents. But once you help people harvest it and understand it, there's so many opportunities for increasing your income with just the talents and skills that you don't even recognize are talents and skills. They're just part of your everyday life. So, for instance, if you are, if you babysit, if people in your family always call you when they have questions about their taxes, or if you're the person who everyone calls and asks for that amazing pound cake recipe, uh, you know, at the church, you can turn that into income. So doing, but that requires you to see yourself in that way. That's why doing the self work is so important. If I have a great talent, but I can't recognize it because I just don't see it in myself, it's a missed opportunity for an economic come up. And Tammy, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Well, they can find us at two places. They can check out my consulting website at CammyTThompson.com. Or they can check out the work that we do at our nonprofit at catapultpittsburgh.org. Timmy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Is there a difference between music therapy and sound healing? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, a lifestyle app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. Yes, there are differences. Music therapists are required to get a degree through an accredited college or university program. In Western nations, music therapists study Western music practices and learn Western-style instruments, which they play in therapeutic settings for a variety of purposes, such as palliative care, recovery from stroke, and reduction of stress after medical procedures. Sound practitioners come from a variety of backgrounds. Some are trained musicians, and some are self-taught musicians. Sound practitioners study a variety of instruments that are percussive and or tonal. Sound practitioners are not therapists, but many are proficient at inducing altered states of consciousness through tonal layering using instruments such as Himalayan bowls, didgeridoo, flutes, chimes, and bells. The higher purpose of sound healing is to bring the listener into a state of relaxation and meditation to calm the mind, release tension, and experience peace. To learn more about sound healing and healing music, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Are you looking to start making smarter decisions with your money, but are unsure of what your first step should be? Hi, my name's Kay Toby, financial services professional with the Fortis Agency. I'm here to share some tips that I suggest to my own clients on how to start becoming more financially responsible. Number one, use a monthly budget sheet. Creating a budget sheet that lists your expenses each month will provide you with an idea of exactly what you're spending money on. This will help you realize where you may be able to cut back on costs that are not truly essential. Number two, map out your financial goals. Taking the time to figure out your goals for the short term, midterm, and long term will help you realize what vehicles you should be saving into. Consider including large financial decisions such as paying for a wedding, purchasing a home, and retirement. Number three, improve your credit score. Paying your credit card bill on time is crucial to raising your credit score and giving you more financial flexibility in the future. For more information on becoming financially responsible, send me an email at ktoby at theforestagency.com. An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself, your products, and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, boosting your reputation, but only if you make a good impression. 
As a producer and radio host who has conducted more than 2,000 interviews, I have experienced all kinds of conversations. Some are great and leave the audience wanting more, while others are uninteresting, significantly diminishing the guest's appearance. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I provide valuable information that will empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills or preparation. To learn more about how I can help you shine like a pro, visit CYACYL.com slash media training. That's CYACYL.com slash media training. today to talk about iron deficiency anemia and the importance of knowing your risk is Dr. Neil Gokul, the medical director of clinical education at Southwest Medical. Dr. Gokul is also the associate program director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Valley Health System. Welcome, Dr. Gokul. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here on behalf of Daiichi Sankyo. Doctor, everyday tasks such as doing laundry or yard work can be tiring for many, but for people with certain chronic conditions, they can sometimes be especially challenging. Iron deficiency anemia affects approximately 6.5 million Americans, including one in five women who are of childbearing age, and many don't even know they have it. So what is iron deficiency anemia, and who is most likely to be affected? As the name suggests, iron deficiency anemia is related to low levels of iron within the body. Our red blood cells are responsible for circulating oxygen from our lungs to the rest of our cells and organs to keep ourselves healthy and active. When we become low or deficient in red blood cells, that's what leads to anemia. Individuals that are at more risk, as you mentioned before, are certainly women of childbearing age. In fact, one in five women of childbearing age will suffer from iron deficiency anemia. Also, individuals with certain chronic conditions, such as heavy uterine bleeding, like heavy menstrual cycles, Certain gastrointestinal conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, including Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, as well as celiac disease and non-dialysis-dependent chronic kidney disease, all increase your risk of having iron deficiency anemia. Are there different stages? There's not necessarily different stages. However, different people can be diff impacted differently. It's important to note that there are common symptoms, as you mentioned before, such as generalized fatigue, shortness of breath with activity, paleness of skin, dizziness, or dry mouth, but many individuals can have iron deficiency anemia and not have any symptoms at all. How is iron deficiency anemia diagnosed? The only way to diagnose iron deficiency anemia, or IDA, is through specific blood tests ordered by your doctor. And it's important to point out that these blood tests are not a part of standard or routine screening, so are not generally included in your annual wellness or general physical exams. So it's important to have a detailed discussion with your doctor on asking about your iron levels. So this test would not be part of our usual blood work? That's correct. Normal or routine standard blood tests that are done for your annual wellness or general physical do not include testing for iron levels. What happens if we don't treat this deficiency? Going untreated, iron deficiency anemia can lead to onset or worsening of symptoms if they already exist, as well as worsening of underlying chronic conditions. So it's important to make sure certain individu individuals, especially those at increased risk, have a detailed discussion with their doctor. There's a great resource at imayhaveida.com to provide more detailed information, as well as the ability to take a personalized quiz that can help guide that discussion with your doctor. What is the usual treatment for this condition? There's a variety of ways of treating iron deficiency anemia, each tailored to the underlying cause of the IDA, as well as in conglomeration with any individual's existing chronic medical conditions, comorbidities, as well as other medications that an individual may be taking. What food should a person with iron deficiency anemia eat, and what should he or she avoid? That's a great question. Diet has an impact on multiple chronic medical conditions, including iron deficiency anemia. While iron-rich foods can help prevent and promote healthy iron levels, that's not always sufficient to maintain or prevent iron deficiency anemia, especially depending on the underlying cause. So it's important to have a detailed discussion with your doctor on determining if iron deficiency exists by checking your iron levels, and if so, the underlying cause and what treatment option is best for each individual. 
And again, imayhaveida.com is a great resource to determine if there are treatment options that are best for a certain individual. And doctor, what's the takeaway? I want to make sure that we understand that iron deficiency anemia is a very common condition affecting six and a half million Americans, many of whom may not have symptoms at all. So it's important to have a detailed discussion with your doctor to ask if you may be at risk or if you may have iron deficiency anemia and then determine the best treatment. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Did you know that smoking is the leading cause of people being diagnosed with lung cancer? Isn't it time for you to quit smoking? Hi, I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner. It is that easy for everyone to stop smoking cigarettes. If you are a smoker and want to quit, let these tips help you stop smoking. First, start reducing the amount of cigarettes you smoke each day until you have no more cigarettes left. Let that day be the start of you being a non-smoker for good. Second, change your habit and substitute a cigarette for a water bottle. So you change the hand-to-mouth motion with something healthy. Number three, create a positive affirmation and repeat it a few times each day. For example, I am a non-smoker today and every day. Let good health and thinking about the money you will save as a non-smoker continue to motivate you. I am Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis practitioner at MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.